Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 282. Today's big Bible question, should Christians be more truth-focused or more love-focused? Plus, what do we do when we're desperate? So happy Sunday, friends. This week at our church gathering, Sunday morning, 11 a.m., we are remembering one of the most singular saints of God that I have ever met in over 25 years of ministry. Our church lost a spiritual giant this week in Miss Eulene Fulton, and we're going to talk about her life today and how God leads us forward when we lose a spiritual giant in our midst. So if you want to join us on Facebook Live, I would love to have you do that. We are at VBC Salinas on Facebook. Just go to the search bar and type in VBC, that's Victor Bravo Charlie Salinas, and you will find our page. You can like it and join us at 11 a.m. Pacific for a message called Moses, My Servant is Dead. Now, our scriptures for today's Bible reading podcast include 1 Kings chapter 7, Psalms 87 and 88, Ezekiel 38, and Ephesians 4, which is pretty much our focus passage. Now, we're talking mainly about truth and love today, but I want to start out discussing Psalms 87 first, because that psalm in particular just resonates with me so much. The reason why is, 28 years ago yesterday, my friend Bradford and I skipped our 9 a.m. English class in college and headed out to do some spelunking, or caving. We didn't go to a simple cave either, but a very long and not fully explored cave. We pushed it to the bottom, climbing down walls with ropes, squeezing through holes, and that sort of thing. Oh, and funny story, (laughs) if you believe in omens, which I don't, uh, but maybe it would have helped just for that one day briefly to believe in omens. As we were walking up to the cave, uh, my friend Bradford stepped on the tail of a rattlesnake. Literally, he didn't see it, and we almost stepped on a copperhead, too, (laughs) so it was a pretty uh, snaky, woodsy Alabama area. We were young, but I was a member of the Birmingham Speleological Society at the time, and I'd been in many caves before, Uh, so not super experienced, but this wasn't my first rodeo either. It was an amazing cave with a a creek at the bottom, huge vaulted rooms. Um, Unfortunately, when trying to climb out of the cave, there was a small rock slide uh, when I was climbing up a wall with a rope that caused the rocks I was climbing on to fall out from under me, and I dislocated my shoulder because all of my weight was suddenly on my right arm, which was clamped onto a rock ledge way above my head. I fell to the bottom of that uh, wall we were climbing up and uh, dislocated my arm literally six more times when trying to climb out because we were at the bottom of, uh, like... Uh, This was the kind of cave that you kind of went in forward, then you climbed down, and and it was, I don't know, if you've never been in a cave like that, it's probably difficult to understand, but we were deep in the bowels of the earth, and uh, it was basically like rock climbing, but in a cave, and I couldn't climb out because my arm, my right arm, my strongest arm, kept dislocating going back up uh, no matter what I did. Uh, We tried different ways of uh, rigging me with the ropes we had, but uh, we didn't have enough equipment, and my arm was getting in pretty terrible shape. It was like in horrible pain. Um, My friend tried to find the way out and go get help, but he came back after 30 minutes of not being able to when his light started flickering, reckoning it would be better for us to be together when our lights went out than to be alone. Um, And I appreciate that because those 30 minutes by myself... In the middle of the earth, well, not the middle, but you know what I mean, it felt like the middle, 
Uh, wow, that was really, 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 really terrifying. We waited about 12 hours in that cave for rescue, and those 12 hours were agonizing. We did not have watches or clocks and certainly no phones because this was the 90s. Uh, and uh, we had to wait with our lights out most of the time. We were wet from the creek in the bottom of the cave, and a bat was flying around and bouncing off of our heads, and I'm not even making any of that up. It was just crazy time. I will never forget the hearing the cave rescue team coming from uh, a long way away. We heard them when they got in the cave, and they were calling out for us, and uh, wow, just seeing those guys with their equipment, oh my gosh, it was just overflowing with joy. We were in the pit of the earth. We were in a terrible and hopeless place, and we got rescued. How did the team find us? Well, once we heard them coming, we began hollering at the top of our lungs. What do you do when you are in a desperate place spiritually? Well, you do something similar, says Psalms 87. When you are in the pit, cry out to God. So let's read Psalms 87 and Psalm 88, which is uh, the psalm we're going to be focusing on today. Psalm 87, verse 1, The city he founded is on the holy mountains. The Lord loves Zion's city gates more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said about you, city of God. Selah. I will make a record of those who know me. Rahab, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush, each one was born there, and it will be said of Zion, this one and that one were born in her. The Most High himself will establish her. When he registers the peoples, the Lord will record, this one was born there. Selah. Singers and dancers alike will say, my whole source of joy is in you. Amen. Psalms 88. This is a cry of desperation. Verse 1. Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out before you day and night. May my prayer reach your presence. Listen to my cry, for I have had enough troubles and my life is near Sheol. I am counted among those going down to the pit. I am like a man without strength, abandoned among the dead. I am like the slain lying in the grave, whom you no longer remember and who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest part of the pit, in the darkest places, in the depths. Your wrath weighs heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all of your waves. Selah. You have distanced my friends from me. You have made me repulsive to them. I am shut in and cannot go out. My eyes are worn out from crying. Lord, I cry out to you all day long. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do departed spirits rise up to praise you? Selah. Will your faithful love be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of oblivion? But I called to you for help, Lord. In the morning my prayer meets you. Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? From my youth I have been suffering in near death. I suffer your horrors. I am desperate. Your wrath sweeps over me. Your terror destroys me. They surround me like water all day long. They close in from every side. You have distanced loved one and neighbor from me. Darkness is my only friend. Well, I have been in that place, or at least something like it, both literally and spiritually and metaphorically. And I can tell you, friends, there is no shame in crying out to God when you are desperate. So don't let your pride hold you back. Seek Him as earnestly as possible when the world is breaking apart all around you. Well, as some of you know, I am an author, not a world-famous author, not a city-famous author, uh, not even really a neighborhood-famous author, but I suppose 
My kids and wife know I'm a writer, so I am a house-famous author. How's that? The first book I ever wrote was called Unshackled, and it was all about the runaway best-selling religious novel called The Shack. I'm not going to call it a Christian novel. That book started out as a blog post review of the book The Shack by William Paul Young and grew into a like 125 or 150 page book over the course of a couple of weeks. I believe the book The Shack is a powerful and well-written book that tells a good story, but unfortunately, it's just absolutely loaded with principles are, uh, that are utterly contrary to the Word of God, and it is a very spiritually dangerous book. Sadly, the book was a bestseller, though, and millions of people bought it and read it. Well, what can church leaders and pastors learn from the runaway success of the shack? Well, two things, one positive and one negative. Positively, we can learn that Christians are desperately hungry for emotional comfort when suffering. This should inform our preaching, our writing, our leading, our ministry to each other. Paul in Ephesians, as we're going to read in just a minute, says, we should speak the truth in love. Now, the shack is short on truth, but it resonates with readers in a way that many perceive as loving. Pastors and teachers should remember that truth devoid of love is simply cold orthodoxy. Truth without love can sometimes seem helpful, but feels harsh and brutal to those on its receiving end. Jesus never spoke truth without love. He also never loved somebody in an untruthful way. Well, second thing we can learn. We can learn that the longing for comfort may drive some Christians to take off their discernment discernment glasses and accept things with a lower level of purity than perhaps they should accept. When you are well stated, you won't drink water out of a dirty cup. A person dying of thirst, however, would eagerly drink cloudy water with even some mud in it. So pastors, teachers, Sunday school leaders, moms and dads, don't let your listeners get to a dying of thirst place. Constantly water. Teach them the loving and truthful word of God in a way that points them to Jesus' love and his truth. There's no either or when it comes to being a people of truth or a people of love. We must be both. In the same way that humans can't choose between, you know, should I survive on water today or air today? We got to have both. Neither can we choose between truth and love. They are both necessary in following Jesus. So let's go read Ephesians chapter 4, which talks about truth and love. And then we're going to return and discuss uh, John Newton and an amazing letter he wrote many years ago. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, for it says... When he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ." From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for the building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts." They became callous and gave themselves over to the promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Amen. Perhaps the best example I've ever read of truth in love was a letter that John Amazing Grace Newton wrote to a friend of his that was about to get involved in a theological dispute. Well, here is that letter, written in the 1700s, slightly modernized by me. And this is what Newton says to his friend that was about to get in, like I said, into an argument with somebody else. He says, As you are likely to be engaged in controversy, and your love of truth is joined with a natural warmth of temper, my friendship makes me eager to help on your behalf. You are of the strongest side, for truth is great and must prevail, so that even a person of abilities inferior to you, yours might take the field with a confidence of victory. I am not, therefore, anxious for the outcome of the battle, but I would have you more than a conqueror, and to triumph not only over your adversary, but over yourself. If your sin, prideful self, cannot be vanquished, you may be wounded. To preserve you from such wounds as might give you cause of weeping over your victories, I would present you with some considerations which, if you will listen and follow, will do you the service of a great coat of armor, so fitting that you will need not complain, as David did of Saul's armor, that it will be more cumbersome than useful. For you will easily perceive it is taken from that great warehouse provided for the Christian soldier, the word of God. It seems worthy of praise for you to defend the faith once delivered to the saints. We are commanded to contend earnestly for it. If ever such defenses were needed, they appear to be so in our own day, when errors abound on all sides and every truth of the gospel is either directly denied or grossly misrepresented. 
I remind you this letter was written in the 1700s. How about that? Newton continues, and yet we find but very few writers of controversy who have not been manifestly hurt by it. Either they grow in a sense of their own importance or imbibe an angry, contentious spirit, or they insensibly withdraw their attention from those things which are the food and immediate support of the life of the faith, and they spend their time and strength upon matters which are at most but of a secondary value. This shows that if the service is honorable, it is dangerous." What will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversary, if at the same time he loses that humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights and of which the promise of his presence is made? Your aim, I doubt not, is good. But you have need to watch and pray, for you will find Satan at your right hand to resist you. He will try to debase your views, and though you set out in defense of the cause of God, if you are not continually looking to the Lord to keep you, it may become your own cause." and awaken in you those tempers which are inconsistent with true peace of mind and will surely obstruct communion with God. Be on your guard against admitting anything personal into this debate. If you think you have been ill-treated, you will have an opportunity of showing that you are a disciple of Jesus who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. This is our pattern. Thus we are to speak and write for God, not rendering verbal attack for verbal attack, but in contrast we give blessing when attacked, knowing that we are called to such behavior. The wisdom that is from above is not only pure, but peaceable and gentle, and the lack of these qualifications like the dead fly in the pot of ointment will spoil the flavor and effectiveness of our work. If we act in a wrong spirit, says Newton, we'll bring little glory to God, do little good to our fellow creatures, and procure neither honor nor comfort to ourselves. If you can be content with showing your wit and gaining the laugh on your side, you have an easy task. But I hope you have a far nobler aim, and that, sensible of the solemn importance of gospel truths and the compassion due to the souls of men, you would rather be a means of removing prejudices against God's people in a single instance, than to obtain the empty applause of thousands. Go forth, therefore, in the name and strength of the Lord of hosts, speaking the truth in love, and may he give you a witness in many hearts that you are taught of God and favored with the unction of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, if you'd like to reread that letter, I sure would encourage you to do that. You can find it on BibleReadingPodcast.com. For today's episode, which is episode number 282, John Newton blows my mind. A man of such incredible humility, he is most certainly a hero of mine, a most uh, wicked sinner saved by the grace of God, used mightily by him in his um, in his last days as a letter writer, as a preacher, a minister, and a great influence on William Wilberforce and the fight against slavery. Well, let's continue. First Kings chapter 7, verse 1. Solomon completed his entire palace complex after 13 years of construction. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. It was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on top of the pillars. It was paneled above with cedar at the top of the chambers that rested on 45 pillars, 15 per row. There were three rows of window frames facing each other in three tiers. All the doors and doorposts had rectangular frames, the openings facing each other in three tiers. He made the hall of 
pillars to 75 feet long and 45 feet wide. A portico was in front of the pillars and a canopy with pillars was in front of them. He made the hall of the throne where you would judge the hall of judgment. It was paneled with cedar from the floor to the rafters. Solomon's own palace where he would live in the other courtyard behind the hall was of similar construction. And he made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, his wife. All of these buildings were of costly stones cut to size and sawed with saws on the inner and outer surfaces from foundation to coping and from the outside to the great courtyard. The foundation was made of large costly stones 12 and 15 feet long. Above were also costly stones cut to size as well as cedar wood. Around the great courtyard as well as the inner courtyard of the Lord's temple and the portico of the temple were three rows of dressed stones and a row of trimmed cedar beams. King Solomon had Hiram brought from Tyre. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze craftsman. Hiram had great skill, understanding, and knowledge to every kind of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and carried out all his work. He cast two bronze pillars, each 27 feet high and 18 feet in circumference. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on top of the pillar. Seven and a half feet was the height of the first capital, and seven and a half feet was also the height of the second capital. The capitals on top of the pillars had gratings of lattice work, wreaths made of chain work, seven for the first capital and seven for the second. He made the pillars with two encircling rows of pomegranates on the one grating to cover the capital on top. He did the same for the second capital, and the capitals on top of the pillars in the portico were shaped like lilies, six feet high. The capitals on the two pillars were also immediately above the rounded surface next to the grating, and 200 pomegranates were in rows encircling each capital. He set up the pillars at the portico of the sanctuary. He set up the right pillar and named it Jachin. Then he set up the left pillar and named it Boaz. The tops of the pillars were shaped like lilies. Then the work of the pillars was completed. He made the cast metal basin 15 feet from brim to brim, perfectly round. It was seven and a half feet high and 45 feet in circumference. Ornamental gourds encircled it below the brim, 10 every half yard, completely encircling the basin. The gourds were cast in two rows when the basin was cast. It stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The basin was on top of them and all their hindquarters were towards the center. The basin was three inches thick and its rim was fashioned like the brim of a cup of a lily blossom. It held 11,000 gallons. Then he made ten bronze water carts. Each water cart was six feet long, six feet wide, and four and a half feet high. This was the design of the carts. They had frames. The frames were between the cross pieces. And on the frames between the cross pieces were lions, oxen, and cherubim. On the cross pieces, there was a pedestal above. And below the lions and oxen were wreaths of hanging work. Each cart had four bronze wheels with bronze axles. Underneath the four corners of the basin were cast supports, each next to a wreath, and the water's cart opening inside the crown on top was 18 inches wide. The opening was round, made as a pedestal 27 inches wide. On it were carvings, but their frames were square, not round. There were four wheels under the frames, and the wheel axles were part of the water cart. Each wheel was 27 inches tall. The wheel's design was similar to that of chariot wheels. Their axles, rims, spokes, and hubs were all of cast metal. Four supports were at the four corners of each water cart. Each support was one piece with the water cart. At the top of the cart was a band nine inches high encircling it. Also at the top of the cart, its braces and its frames were one piece with it. He engraved cherubim, lions, and palm trees on the plates of its braces and on its frames wherever each had space with encircling wreaths. 
In this way, he made the tin water carts using the same casting dimensions and shape for all of them. Then he made tin bronze basins. Each basin held 220 gallons and each was six feet wide, one basin for each of the tin water carts. He set five water carts on the right side of the temple and five on the left side. He put the basin near the right side of the temple toward the southeast. Then Hiram made the basins, the shovels, and the sprinkling basins. So Hiram finished all the work that he was doing for King Solomon on the Lord's temple, two pillars, bowls for the capitals that were on top of the two pillars, the two gratings for covering both bowls of the capitals that were on top of the pillars, the 400 pomegranates for the two gratings, two rows of pomegranates for each grating, covering both capitals bowls on top of the pillars, the ten water carts, the ten basins on the water carts, the basin, the twelve and oxen underneath the basin, and the pot shovels and sprinkling basins. All the utensils that Hiram made for King Solomon at the Lord's temple were made of burnished bronze. The king had them cast in clay models in the Jordan Valley between Sukkoth and Zarathane. Solomon left, left all the utensils unweighed because there were so many. The weight of the bronze was not determined. Solomon also made all the equipment in the Lord's temple, the gold altar, altar, the gold table, the bread of the presence was placed on, the pure gold lampstand in front of the inner sanctuary, five on the right and five on the left, the gold flowers, lamps, and tongs, the pure gold ceremonial bowls, wick trimmers, sprinkling basins, ladles, and fire pans, and the gold hinges for the doors of the inner, inner temple, that is, the most holy place, and for the doors of the temple sanctuary. So all the work King Solomon did in the Lord's temple was completed. Then Solomon brought in the consecrated things of his father David, the silver, the gold, and the utensils, and put them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by his spirit and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were a great many of them on the surface of the valley, and they were very dry. Then he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I replied, Lord God, only you know. And he said to me, prophesy concerning these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to these bones. I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. I will put tendons on you, make flesh grow on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you so that you come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been commanded. While I was prophesying, there was a noise A rattling sound and the bones came together bone to bone. As I looked, tendons appeared on them. Flesh grew and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. He said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man. Say to it, this is what the Lord God says. Breath, come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. The breath entered them and they came to life and stood on their feet. A vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Look how they say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Lord God says. I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them, my people, and lead you into the land of Israel. You will know that I am the Lord, my people, when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. This is the declaration of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Take a single stick and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it, belonging to Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and all the house of Israel associated with him. Then join them together into a single stick so that they become one in your hand. When your people ask you, won't you explain to us what you mean by these things? Tell them. This is what the Lord God says. I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and put them together with the stick of Judah. 
I will make them into a single stick so that they become one in my hand. When the sticks you have written on are in your hand and in full view of the people, tell them, This is what the Lord God says, I am going to take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will rule over all of them. They will no longer be two nations and will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will not defile themselves anymore with their idols, their abhorrent things, and all their transgressions. I will save them from all their apostasies by which they sinned, and I will cleanse them. Then they will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and there will be one shepherd for all of them. They will follow my ordinances and keep my statutes and obey them. They will live in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your ancestors lived. They will live in it forever with their children and grandchildren, and my servant David will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be a permanent covenant with them. I will establish and multiply them and set my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. When my sanctuary is among them forever, the nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel. Yes, Lord. Amen. Good day to you, friends. A happy Lord's Day. Godspeed.